as always. Thank you so much. They do a wonderful job. I don't know what I'd do without them. Um, I'd probably make Mike try to play piano. <laughs> they know each other. <laughs> All right, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 31 as we continue our study in Isaiah. Um, and as we've been seeing since Isaiah chapter 28, um, Isaiah has been critiquing the worldly powers that we experience around us when it comes to us trying to identify and trying to find salvation in the world, whether it be military um, might, whether it be our wisdom, whether it be um, our, our leaders in the end. God is always saying, no, turn to me first. Turn to me. Understand what I am saying, and then you will find salvation. Um, and we're going to see more of that today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead to our maps. And... Uh, as you remember, Isaiah is very much discussing his world at the time, and this is his world. Assyria is the major power. They've been conquering everybody, um, and it's probably around this time already that uh, the northern kingdom has already been taken over by Assyria. Um, go ahead to our next map, Betsy, and we see how they kind of conquered out from Nineveh all the way out all over the world. And so that leaves, you know, Judah, who is now left, with a problem. They have this Assyrian threat. Who are they going to turn to? Well, right now, they... Can you go back real quick? I, um, I know. I, I usually say... that Anyway, go ahead. Um, they're actually going to turn to Egypt, which, again, we've, t- we've talked about this already. Isaiah's already critiqued Egypt about being basically a powerless help. Um, but that's where they're turning. Their leaders are saying, hey, let's make an alliance with Egypt, and Egypt's might might save us from Assyria. And now go ahead to the next one. And now, as we know, though, I mean, Israel's already gone, so it's just Judah, Jerusalem, and as we'll see in a few weeks, we'll see the siege of Jerusalem by our friends Assyria and how all that goes. Um, But again, that's the world which Isaiah is proclaiming to, is this very hostile world, in a way, to the truth. Um, And in the end, it's not much different from our own world, if you ask me, and as we'll see. All right, so let's go ahead to verses 1 through 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because there are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Do not look, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster and he does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. So the chapter begins with Isaiah declaring a woe. This is the, the final woe in this section against the people which started in chapter 28. Since then, Isaiah has declared woes against the drunken leadership, those who relied on cultic practices for righteousness as though cultic practice was enough and not a turning towards God in repentance, the leaders who conspired without seeking God's guidance, and finally with the stubborn people who were acting like children not listening to God. Now we find the woe is against those who have listened to all those who came before and are acting out in accordance with those plans. Now what are the plans? As we discussed, the plans are to rely on Egypt. They go to Egypt because they trust in Egypt's strength to save them from the Assyrians. Their horses, their chariots, and horsemen represent the military prowess of Egypt, which they believe will bring salvation. They are willing to trust in these things, yet completely ignore God 
whether for protection or for consultation on what they should be doing. And instead of consulting God, the people have instead trusting in the failed leadership and the sages who were the wise uh, men. Yet God is also wise. He knows and he is able to provide wisdom. Not only wisdom, but he's also to provide disaster as well. Some scholars note this to mean that though they believe in their plan, God will frustrate their plans. And in this way, it will bring disaster for those who plan without him. If God has promised to do something, then he will accomplish it, whether it be blessings or curses. God is not like us who will waver, but instead will bring about what he has spoken. He has declared that those who practice evil and those who encourage evil practices will be undone by his hand. He will do it not because of some partial treatment, but by his own righteousness against all those who are unrighteous, regardless of who they are. As it is, the Egyptians are men, just like the people of Judah. God, however, is not a man. Their weapons and military might are physical. In contrast, God, which is spirit. When God does stretch out his hand against evildoers, it will not be swayed. The evildoers here seem to be those who are following the advice of the sages by rejecting God. And those who help are those who encourage such behavior. And it could also include Egypt in that where they're saying, oh, we're going to rely on Egypt. Guess what? By relying on these things, you're all going to be brought into devastation. Now we come to the next verses, 4 through 9. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight at Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel, for in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrians shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. That the Lord says it to Isaiah shows the clear significance of the prophet's own voice. Isaiah does not speak for himself, but speaks as a herald on behalf of their king. Thus, whatever Isaiah declares is meant to be heard and taken into consideration because of its source, that it is from God, not just from Isaiah. As it is, the Lord describes himself in two different ways. The first is as a lion or a young lion. Once it has its prey, it will not be phased by the shouting of men. The lion has what it desires, and it will not be scared off by the rabble. So it is with God and Mount Zion. He is unafraid of the enemies of his people, and he himself will deal with them. Now the second description is like birds which protect their nest and their young. So it is with God. He will protect and deliver Jerusalem from those who would come to destroy the city and the people. That he will spare also reminds us of the fact that though Assyria is the enemy, it is God who has even brought Assyria to them because of Judah's faithlessness thus far. Still, God will relent in his judgment against his people and will instead turn his judgment on Assyria for their immorality as well. 
Knowing that God is one who is able to protect them, the logical course would be to turn to repent, to stop going against God. They have been a stubborn people, trusting in their deities and other worldly powers for their protection. Yet in light of what the Lord is saying to the people, they should heed him and run toward him instead. Indeed, once it has become clear that the Lord is their redeemer, it will lead to them embracing him rather than rejecting him. They will cast aside the idols of gold and silver, which they believed were their salvation. The encounter with God leads to the people finally accepting him and rejecting all others. Despite the precious metals which crafted the idols, all of it would be discarded as worthless when compared to God. As for the Assyrians, the great enemy of the time, they will fall. It will not be by the hands of the Judean people or really the hand of any people in the end. Instead, God, who is ever sovereign over history and the people of the world, will be the one who brings the destruction against Assyria. And again, as a hint, we will see this later on. Indeed, it is not only that God will stop the devastation brought by Assyria against Jerusalem and the Judeans, but also that he will end Assyrians' power. We see this with his rock shall pass away in terror. This can represent a stronghold or it can represent the leader of the Assyrians at the time, which was Sennacherib. <laughs> Good luck. In any case, the officers who were once the leaders of the army are panicked and they flee, as such does the rest of the army. This is all spoken by the Lord and as such, it is expected to come to pass as we found in verse 2, that it is from the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose hearth is Jerusalem reminds us of chapter 28, where Jerusalem is described as God's hearth place or hearth place. Jerusalem was where the temple of God was located and the centralized location for Yahweh, Yahwistic worship. As such, to live faithfully or faithlessly in Jerusalem is to be burned, but so too is to touch it faithlessly, such as the Assyrians attempt to do when they come and conquer. All right. So the main point of these verses are to show the foolishness of the people and how that foolishness leads to evil by rejecting God. Despite God holding his hand out to protect them against the Assyrian threat, they continue to rely on worldly powers and worldly understanding. As such, they will experience the repercussion for their failure, but they will not be destroyed. Indeed, we find in the end God will save them from his own judgment and will instead judge the Assyrians who are also under his sovereignty. Whereas God's people feel the heat, so to speak, the Assyrians will be burned in the fire. All right, so application points. I'll admit, I'm going to start. Uh, it was a hard sermon to write. I don't know why. So if, if this makes sense to anyone, I praise the Lord. If it doesn't make sense to you, blame me. Um, here we go. Isaiah has continued to proclaim the truth to his culture, right? Ever since Isaiah encountered God, seated high and lifted up, he has proclaimed the understanding that this God, the God of Israel, is far greater in power than any other power. This is true whether they be gods or national powers. In the end, Isaiah has repeatedly shown that God is greater than all of these. Thus, the people, they have a responsibility. Since the Mosaic Covenant, God offered them the choice in obedience or disobedience. The ramifications for each was made manifest in the law. 
If they should be obedient, it would lead to incredible blessing. If they should be disobedient, it would lead to incredible sorrow. We see this in Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20, that perhaps says it best. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord with, um, loving the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and if you do not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days. That you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So in all of this, we find a common theme with Isaiah, especially today. By rejecting God, they have shown themselves to be evildoers. By relying on the powers of the world for their protection and their strength... It leads to nothing but a bill of false goods. Clearly, the power of Egypt is nothing when compared to the power of God. But we would also be missing something if we were to understand it from only a military or national power perspective. While it is true that this is the case and that there is chastisement against such trust, there is also chastisement against the reasoning, the understanding, the wisdom which leads to that trust. As we reflected, the passage flows well from the last chapter where Isaiah critiqued the leadership for plotting in the dark. The plotting was entrusting in Egypt. Now what's the problem with this? It isn't just that they were plotting or that they were relying on Egypt. Instead, the issue is that they were relying far more on themselves and their own wisdom when it came to the problem of Assyria. They utilized their own wisdom to discern the best course for the nation. What they failed to do was to turn to God and seek his wisdom for what they should do, how they should act, and in what manner they should be led. We see this clearly in the passage today as Isaiah basically says, you're looking at the horses, you're looking at the military might, yet you don't even look to God. They're seeing what is right in front of them, the Assyrian threat, and instead of seeking the all-wise and all-powerful God, they're relying in themselves in the hopes of their salvation. Yet again, what is their responsibility? They are responsible for seeking out the Lord. As much as we could critique the people of old for doing this, I suspect we are not so different. The simple truth is humanity has not changed at all over the course of time. We encounter reality, and in reality we encounter particular threats and problems and we seek to overcome them by our own means. We see it throughout human cultures, and ours is no different. So when we encounter the issues within reality, we seek to understand them, or undermine them, or eradicate them in our own particular ways. Do we have any examples of such issues? Well, it depends on who you ask. Some will say things like racism. Others will say sexism. Still others will say poverty. 
What are the answers given to each of these issues? Indeed, what will our answer be to each of these? How we respond will matter significantly because the world continues to give its own form of response to these problems. When it comes to the above, the answer given by the world is one of power. This neo-Marxist understanding seeks to give power to those who have been powerless. And since minorities, women, and the poor have not held power in our societies, the only way to alleviate the problem is to give them the power. Not only this, but the only way those who once had power can truly understand the ramifications of being powerless is to strip them of said power. And in this way, they could atone for having power at all. Thus, to alleviate the pangs of racism requires not that we treat each other as equals, but that if you have been in a position of power that is in the majority, then you should become powerless. Thus, in our culture, whites are the majority and have held power. Therefore, minority races should be given power in place of those who are white. The same is true of sexism. The way to eradicate sexism is to give power to women. Men have held on to power for too long, and it has only caused women to be oppressed. The only way to alleviate it is to emasculate men and force them to be lorded over by women. Finally, with poverty, those who are rich should have their riches taken away and given to the poor. In order for them to truly understand the experience of the poor, they must become poor themselves. In this way, they can atone for their richness by being poor. Now, unfortunately, all of these concepts have become increasingly adopted by many congregations. Progressive Christians in particular have begun to cling to these understandings as the only way to truly raise anyone up. It is only by accepting that we, each of us, are personally responsible for the systemic injustice which has occurred in our culture. This is true especially if you happen to be a rich white male, though any white male can be castigated will do. In some ways, one can understand the world's response to the issues, right? After all, when has power not tempted us. Yet I also think that by accepting such dogma, it is no different than turning toward Egypt for our security. It is essentially not asking God what his response is to the threat or to the problems we face in reality, and instead finding an alternative. By doing this, we often have to recreate reality in order for the response to even make sense. For example, with racism. By focusing only on the majority being able to be racist, it allows minorities to be free of all forms of being racist. They can't be racist because racism only happens with those who have the power. Despite seeing the contrary to this, despite the appearance of racism, not only by the majority but also the minority as well, despite the crimes, the violence, etc., in the end, minorities are not actually racist, even if these things should occur. Instead, when they do these things which would be considered racist if done by the other side, it is considered fighting against oppression. In this way, they are given justified power to act as they want. Or conversely, if we were, uh, there are those in the majority who have never been racist or who have never treated anyone differently because of their skin color, they are still racist simply because they are part of the majority. In some way, deep down, they are racist. Same with sexism. If a man says some kind of sexual innuendo toward a woman, or let's say is seen sexualizing women, it is perceived as evil. If, however, women speak sexual innuendos, or sexualize men, or even sexualize themselves, then they are called brave, powerful, and fighting oppression. If you doubt me on this, see Cardi B. 
I went there. Finally, when it comes to poverty, if someone is living in poverty and they act in a way that the rich person does, it is not seen as bad because they're in poverty. For example, the rich man steals. It is terrible. The poor man steals. It is justified. Now, the problems and self-refuting, self-defeating nature of these things is evident. In the end, by adopting these concepts in order to deal with the issues in reality, it becomes nothing more than going to Egypt for help. It is as Isaiah has said previously, like going to one who is impotent and believing they have strength, in the end they do not. That leaves us with a question, however. If these do not adequately deal with the problems we see in reality and in society, what can deal with them? I believe the answer is found in today's passage. God's wisdom, his strength, his knowledge. Indeed, God himself is the answer. Because God exists, we have a reason for fighting against injustice and for seeking what is righteous. Because God exists, we have a reason for seeking to abolish racism and sexism within the broader culture and within our congregations. Indeed, all humans, male and female, are created in the image of God. There is no race which does not bear the image of God on them. All humans have this dignity, sanctity, and worth to life, no matter who the human is in this case. When we remember this, remember where we all originate, then it causes us to remember that there is no reason to hold others in contempt for their gender or their race, for we have all been gifted with the image of our creator. When it comes to poverty, the same can be said. Those who are wealthy are to be good stewards with the gifts God has given them. To be a good steward with what God has given is from the beginning in Genesis 1-3, through where humanity is placed in the garden as caretakers. As such, for those who are wealthy, they should act righteously and be merciful to those who have little. Just as Christ, with his infinite riches, has bestowed his great riches upon us who were and are destitute. So we can do similar for those around us. Ultimately, the sword of God is what brings destruction and devastation against evildoers. The more we live in obedience to the Lord, the more we find evil being conquered, not by our strength, but by the Lord himself. He is the one who conquers in and around us. Yet, God calls us to be responsible in light of his victory and strength. What does this mean? This means that we are to be responsible in seeking what is good, regardless of who we are or what we are in our culture. If we are a minority in some way, or an individual who has often been taken advantage of, or if we're impoverished, in the end, it does not negate our responsibility to do what is right, not in our own sight, but in the light of God. Now, some will say, but what about the oppressed? Surely, they must stand up against oppression, and surely, we must as well. I agree. But we must remember that God expects all of us to live in righteousness. We cannot justify the wickedness of those who may be oppressed. Consider again what is said in Isaiah 9, 13 through 17. The Lord did not turn, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head and the prophet who teaches, who lies, teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people, have been leading them astray, 
and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. This, then, is the biblical response to the many ills which we face in our society, and it is a better response and answer and understanding than is given to us by our compatriots. Whereas they justify the evil done by those who have little or no power, in Christian thought we are always responsible because we are all created in God's image with the purpose of seeking to glorify our creator. Thus we cannot excuse ourselves simply because we are destitute. We cannot justify our evils because of our lots in life. No, we must seek to glorify this great God regardless of where he has placed us, knowing that in the end the greatest good that can come is not if I personally have power, but in my acceptance that the only one who has power is God. This world is full of Assyrias coming to destroy It is full of traps and snares in order to hinder and harm. We are always being tempted to stand against the threats with our own power, with our own wisdom. Yet we are never strong enough against the darkness within and without. The only safe place we can find is not in our own reason or our own ability to overcome the obstacles, but in obedience to our Creator. For he gives us our purpose. He gives us our direction and our meaning. To seek our own way will only ever lead us to our own destruction and further evils. As such, seek to honor God by being faithful to the one who sweeps away the darkness we encounter. All enemies will be swept away by his mighty hand. We, no matter our circumstances, have nothing to fear in light of this God who saves. For he will protect his people, and he will guide us into true righteousness. It is our responsibility to follow. Let us follow, knowing that it is only in this way the world can find a better place. Now, naturally, I believe that this leads us to the gospel. I mean, all of Isaiah has led us to the gospel in some ways. And when it comes to the gospel, it all begins with our origins. We are all created in the image of God. That God created all this cosmos and all that we see, all that we encounter, all of reality itself is a majestic thing. And then he created humanity to bear his image. The only thing to bear his image is you and I and everyone you see around you. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of spectacular if you ask me. And that through this, we all have dignity, sanctity, and worth to life as we've already talked about. Humanity, God's precious image to him. But what happens with humanity? Well, the same thing that happens in today's text. We fall into sin. We believe that we have a better way. Instead of going and um, following God in obedience and faithfulness, instead of that, what we do is we try to pluck the apple thinking, ah, yes, the devil's right. I can become God. But guess what? You and I can't be God. We're finite We don't know what's going to happen in 10 minutes, let alone 10 seconds or 10,000 years from now. Only God knows. If anyone can give us our reason and our 
meaning to life. It's God. And yet by continually spurning that hand, by saying to God no, and then sinning even more, we deserve judgment for all these sins. And it's a terrible reality that we face that humanity, despite being made in the very image of God, is so willing to go against that which we were created, in, in, in whose image we're created in. Now we could sit here and just recognize the fact that we're destitute. And we can all become completely overwhelmed by the fact that we are truly guilty of sin, that we are truly the enemies of God, that we are the ones who continually hammered the door of Jerusalem where God's spirit dwells and we want to destroy it because God dwells there. But to do that, to sit there in our misery, would not be good. And God knows that. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, in time, space, history, and flesh to live, to die, and to rise again for our redemption. It's in him we find redemption. And Isaiah preaches it. It's by the hand of God that redemption comes. It's not the Judeans. It's not the Egyptians. It's not their warriors. It's the one person, the X in the scriptures, that we find this great redemption and we find God himself coming to us and redeeming us for his glory so we can seek righteousness. So we can know righteousness. This world, you keep on seeing it. It keeps on trying to make up. Okay, well, righteousness is a good thing. We should try to get it this way. Meanwhile, God's over here saying, no, I've given it to you. It's Jesus. Let's not be fooled. Let's not be led astray by what the world offers us. Instead, let's cling to the person of Jesus Christ, the one God has offered. Let him be the cause, the reason, our righteousness. Because in him, all righteousness dwells. And where does it lead us? In Christ, we are led into eternal life where all the problems that we face, all of these Assyrians, all of the destruction that we see, all the mass shootings that happen in our society, they're going to be done. They're going to be gone. And as one great song says that Rob will know, we're going to live forever. (laughs) And we are going to live forever in Christ. But it's only in Christ. Let's not be led in any other way. And let us pray. Father, we thank you so much. For Isaiah, we thank you that your wisdom is greater than the wisdom of the world, that you have provided us all that we really need, and that if we should simply follow you in faith, we would see ourselves changed. We would also see things around us begin to change. But Lord, we know it can't be done with our own strength. We've tried, Lord. And the best we ever do is come up with contradictions. But Lord, you have provided us a way a way of eternal life, of righteousness, of justice that has no contradictions. It is complete. It is full. It is wonderful. And it comes by your very hand. So Lord, as we continue on, let us continue to dwell with you. Let us not be deceived by those around us. But please, Lord, open our eyes. Open our ears to see you because you are truly worthy of all of our lives. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing.